This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, December 10th, 2018, episode 62, concerning the design of the chessboard. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And today, we're continuing our holiday series on William Caxton's The Game and Play of the Chess, and using that to explore other general board game lore. Last episode, we included a fairly old source, the 9th century Persian Shatranj Namak, but this time, uh, before we get to our 15th century Caxton, we're going to jump right back into antiquity. So, what kind of games were people playing 2,500 years ago? Well, part of one early Buddhist text, the Brahmajala Sutta, offers a delightful glimpse. In this text, we get a speech by Gautama Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, that includes a chastisement of monks who are not using their time appropriately. And one of those misuses of time is playing games. And so we get this catalog. Quote, Whereas some recluses and Brahmins, while living on food provided by the faithful, continue addicted to games and recreations, i.e. to say, 1. Games on boards, with boards of 8 or 10 rows of squares. 2. The same games played by imagining such boards in the air. 3. Keeping going over diagrams drawn on the ground, so that one steps only where one ought to go. 4. Either removing the pieces of men from a heap with one's nail, or putting them in a heap, in each case without shaking it, he who shakes the heap loses. 5. Throwing dice. 6. Hitting a short stick with a long one. 7. Dipping the hand with the fingers stretched out in lac, or red dye, or flower water, and striking the wet hand on the ground or on a wall, calling out, what shall it be, and showing the form require elephants, horses, etc. 8. Games with balls. 9. Blowing through toy pipes made of leaves. 10. Plowing with toy plows. 11. Turning somersaults. 12. Playing with toy windmills made of palm leaves. 13. Playing with toy measures made of palm leaves. 14 and 15. Playing with toy carts or toy bows. 16. Guessing at letters traced in the air or on a playfellow's back. 17. Guessing the playfellow's thoughts. 18. Mimicking of deformities. Gautama Buddha, the recluse, holds aloof from such games and recreations. End quote. That was from H.J.R. Murray's History of Chess, uh, which takes it from an edition by Reese Davids. Bearing in mind that some of the translation is speculative, as the meanings of some of the terms are obscured by time, uh, in this list we have some sports, ball and stick games, and something that sounds a bit like hopscotch. We have some party games that still continue today, like guessing what someone's riding on your back. We have pinwheels and what sounds like a version of pickup sticks or maybe don't spill the beans. And right at the top of the list, we have board games, namely games played on a grid of squares. The game played on the 8x8 grid is called Ashtapada, and it was around for a long time before chess. We have ancient sources describing cities as being laid out like the Ashtapada board, 
and it seems likely that the board itself was modeled on a regular city grid of intersecting streets. Um, That is, the surviving literary evidence shows the metaphor applied the other way around, cities look like the board, but it probably was originally that the board modeled a city. And we're going to see the same idea carried on in Caxton. The Ashtapada board in its early forms was most likely a solid color grid and not checkered. We don't have good sources for how the game was actually played, though there have been many speculative reconstructions. We know that it was a form of racing game involving dice, and that usually wagers were placed on the outcome, which perhaps explains why it comes in at the top of the list for recreations forbidden to those who would be holy. When the unknown individual or group who devised chess set out to make their battle simulation game, they used the existing Ashtapada board, perhaps still thinking of it as a city, which would mean that chess is actually a representation of urban warfare. When the board acquired its checkered pattern is unclear. Many early boards remained single color, uh, and indeed in regional varieties of chess, especially in Southeast Asia today, uncheckered boards continue to be common. Even the first European evidence of chess indicates the use of a single-color board, though by the 10th century, the checkered pattern was already widely adopted, uh, since it does make things like diagonal movement on the board a lot easier to trace. Early descriptions of the checkered board give red and white as the conventional coloring, uh, like a pizzeria tablecloth, but white and black come to be the norm in Europe by the later Middle Ages. Caxton refers to the chessboard as the checker or s-checker, which comes from the French word for chess, échec. And as I mentioned in an episode long ago, this is where the government office of the exchequer gets its name, since accounting used to be done using tokens placed on a checkered table. Caxton also refers to the squares or spaces on the board as points. That's potentially confusing, uh, as we'll talk about more after the text, uh, because there are games played on the intersection points of a gridded board, and usually a distinction is made between playing on the points and playing on the cells or squares. The Oxford English Dictionary does have an entry for point as a square on a chessboard, uh, but only shows citations from the 14th and 15th centuries, so it seems to have had a relatively small window of currency in English. And because we've skipped past the bulk of the game and play of the chess, uh, books two and three, which give the moralized portraits of the different pieces, we should pause to cover the terms Caxton uses for the pieces, which are going to appear in today's excerpt. King, Queen, and Knight have kept the same names, and those names have direct counterparts in the Arabic, Persian, and Indian versions, except for the Queen, who was the counselor or vizier in the older traditions, as I mentioned last episode. The bishop and rook are a different matter. In the original Indian game, what we call the bishop was the elephant, which in Arabic became the al-fin, and that term was borrowed into European chess, even as what the piece represented changed. So Caxton's bishops are alphins in a sort of Hellenized version, A-L-P-H-Y-N-S, and these represent the king's judges. The Indian game also had the chariot. In Persian, this was the rukh, R-U-K-H. That term was retained in English, though as the game continued its progress westward, what this piece represented began to change and become a bit mysterious, frankly. For Caxton, the rooks are, quote, vicars and legates of the king, so court officials, clerks, messengers. 
Pawns have represented foot soldiers from the very first, though the principal source for Caxton, uh, Jacobus de Chesolis, assigned each pawn its own specific identity, displaying a cross-section of the common people. So in Caxton, we have the eight pawns symbolizing laborers, smiths, secular clerks, merchants, physicians, taverners, customs officials, and gamblers. More or less. Some of those categories have weird additions to them, like the gamblers and players at dice also, for some reason, include messengers and couriers, uh, presumably of a lower status than the royal messengers represented by the rooks. And the category of secular clerks covers not only notaries and scribes, but also drapers and cloth makers for some reason. Again, you sort of feel this kind of ricketiness or looseness to the allegory, where chess isn't quite proving a sufficient image on which to hang all of the social commentary that an allegory of the estates requires. And one last quick linguistic note. Uh, this is a good time to refresh our memories that the word wherefore, as in the oft-misunderstood, O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo, uh, it does not mean where, but rather why. Juliet is asking why Romeo has to be who he is, not where he's got to. Likewise, when Caxton says that he will tell us wherefore the 64 points are set in the board, he's not going to tell us spatially how they're placed on the board, but why there are 64 spaces. Uh, wherefore and therefore are partners. Therefore means because. Wherefore is why. Wherefore, therefore. Why? Because. Okay, and now let's get the answers to those questions about why there's 64 points in the board. Uh, here's Caxton's description of the layout of the chessboard from the first chapter of the fourth book of the game and play of the chess. The fourth tractate and the last, of the progression and drafts, or movements, of the foresaid play of the chess. The first chapter of the fourth tractate, of the chessboard, in genera, how it is made. We have devised above the things that appertain unto the forms of the chessmen, and of their offices that is to wit, as well of noblemen as of the common people. Then it appertaineth that we should devise shortly how they issue and go out of the places where they be set. And first we ought to speak of the form and of the fashion of the checker, after that it representeth and was made after. For it was made after the form of the city of Babylon, in which this same play was founded, as it is said afore. And ye shall understand that ye ought to consider here in four things. The first is wherefore that sixty-four points been set in the checker, which been all square, the second is wherefore the border about is higher than the squares of the points. The third is wherefore the common people been set to for the nobles. The fourth is wherefore the nobles and the people been set in their proper places. There been as many points in the exchequer void as full, and ye shall first understand wherefore that there been sixty-four points in the exchequer. For as the blessed St. Jerome saith, the city of Babylon was right great and was made all square and in every quarter was sixteen mile by number and measure, the which number four times told was sixty-four miles. After the manner of Lombardy, they be called miles, and in France, Lukes, and in England, they be called miles also. 
and for to represent the measure of this city in which this play or game was founded, the philosopher that found it first ordained a tablier containing 64 points square, the which been comprised within the border of the tablier. There been 32 on that one side and 32 on that other side, which been ordained for the beauty of the play and for to show the manner and drawing of the chess, as it shall appear in the chapters following. As to the second, wherefore the border of the exchequer is higher than the table within it, it is to be understood that the border about representeth the wall of the city, which is right high, and therefore made the philosopher the border more high than the tablier. And as the blessed St. Jerome saith upon the prophecy of Isaiah, that is to wit, upon a mountain of obscurity, which words were said of Babylon which standeth in Chaldee, and nothing of that Babylon that standeth in Egypt. For it is so, that Babylon which standeth in Chaldee was set in a right great plain, and had so high walls, that by the height of them was continual darkness environed and obscurity, that no earthly man might behold and see the end of the highness of the wall, and therefore Isaiah called it the Mountain Obscure. And St. Jerome said that the measure of the height of this wall was three thousand paces, which extendeth unto the length of three mile Lombardy. It is to wit that Lombard miles and English miles been of one length, and in one of the corners of this city was made a tower, triangle as a shield, whereof the height extended unto the length of seven thousand paces, which is seven mile English. And this tower was called the Tower of Babel. The walls about the tower made a woman whose name was Semiramis, as saith Virgilius. As to the third, wherefore the common people been set to for the nobles in the field of the battle in one rank, first, for as much as they been necessary to all nobles. For the rook, which standeth on the right side and is vicar of the king, what may he do if the laborer were not set to for him, and labored to minister to him such temporal things as be necessary for him? And what may the knight do if he nay had to for him the smith, for to forge his armors, saddles, axes, and spears, and such things as appertaineth to him? And what is a knight worth without horse and arms? Certainly nothing more than one of the people, or less peradventure. And in what manner should the nobles live if no man made cloth and bought and sold merchandise? And what should kings and queens and the other lords do if they had no physicians nor surgeons? Then I say the people been the glory of the crown and sustain the life of the nobles. And therefore thou that art a lord or a nobleman or knight, despise not the common people, for as much as they been set to for thee in the play. The second cause is why the people been set to for the nobles and have the table void to for them, is because they begin the battle. They ought to take heed and intend to do their offices and their crafts in such wise that they suffer the noblemen to govern the cities and to counsel and make ordinances of the people and of the battle. How should a laborer, a plowman, or a crafty man counsel and make ordinance of such things as he never learned, and what nay knoweth the matter upon what thing the counsel ought to be taken? Certes, the common people ought not to intend to none other thing but for to do their service and the office which is convenable unto them. And it appertaineth not to them to be of counsels, nor at the advocations, nor to menace, nor to threat no man. For oft times by menaces and by force good counsel is distroubled. And where good counsel faileth, there oft times the city's been betrayed and destroyed. 
And Plato saith that the common things and the cities been blessed when they been governed by wise men, or when the governors study in wisdom. And so it appertaineth to the common to learn to utter the matters and the manner of procuration tofore they be counselors. For it happeth oft times that he that maketh him wiser than he understandeth is made more fool than he is. And the fourth cause, wherefore there been in tablier as many points void as been full, it is to wit for that they, whatever they be that have people to govern, ought to enforce to have cities and castles and possessions for to set his people therein, and for to labor and do their occupation. For to have the name of a king without a realm is a name void, and honor without profit. And all noblesse without good manners, and without such things as noblesse may be maintained, ought better to be called folly than noblesse. And shameful poverty is more grievous when it cometh by nature of an high and noble birth or house. For no man gladly will reprove a poor man of the common people, but every man hath in despite a noble man that is poor, if he have not in him good manners and virtuous, by which his poverty is forgotten. And truly a realm without abundance of goods by which it may be governed and prosper may better be called a latrocity, or a nest of thieves, than a realm. Alas, what abundance was sometimes in this realm, and what prosperity in which was justice and every man in his office content! How stood the cities that time in worship and renown! How was renowned the noble realm of England! All the world dread it and spake worship of it! How it now standeth, and in what abundance, I report me to them that know it. If there been thieves within the realm or on the sea, they know that labor in the realm, and sail on the sea. I wot well the fame is great thereof. I pray God save that noble realm, and send good, true, and politic counselors to the governors of the same. And no bless of lineage, without puissance and might, is but vanity and despite. And it is so, as we have said tofore, that the checker which the philosopher ordained represented and figured the said city of Babylon, and in likewise may it figure a realm and signify all the world. And if men regard and take heed unto the points unto the mids of every quadrant, and so to double every quadrant to other, the miles of this city always doubling unto the number of sixty-four, the number of the same should surmount all the world. And not only the world, but many worlds by the doubling of miles, which doubling so as afore is said, should surmount all things. And thus endeth the first chapter of the fourth book. So, there you have the layout of the chessboard. In the next few episodes of this series, we'll see how the pieces move and what their form of movement symbolizes. Before chess and its board arrived in Western Europe, there were other indigenous war games played on boards. The Romans had one which spread wherever Roman soldiers went, which was pretty much everywhere. This game was known as Ludus Latrunculorum, or just Latrunculi, which is the name of the pieces. Latro is a word meaning hired servant or bodyguard or mercenary soldier. Latrunculus is the diminutive of that, so little soldiers. And ludus is game, so ludus latrunculorum, the game of soldiers. And, fun coincidence, the word latrosony 
meaning nest of thieves that we just heard used by Caxton, has the same root, latro, in this case meaning highwaymen or robbers, which tells you something about Roman thoughts on the ethical condition of mercenaries. There have been many reconstructions of this game, uh, but we don't have good documentary evidence for exactly how it was played in Roman or early medieval times. We know it was played on a gridded board, commonly 8x8, just like the Ashtapada board, but other sizes have been found, including various rectangular configurations. The number of pieces in play probably varied as the board did, uh, but we do know that, as in checkers, all the pieces were identical and adhered to the same rules for movement and capture. Latrunculi may have been the basis for a Celtic game played in Ireland and Wales, known as Fidgel in Irish or Gwithboith in Welsh, uh, but that game was in turn displaced slash absorbed by the game of yet another invasive foreign power. Like the Romans, the Vikings brought their own game along everywhere they extended their power around the North Atlantic, uh, including the Celtic lands. The generic name for this game is Tavl, T-A-F-L, which gets pronounced differently from language to language. In Old Norse, Tavl meant board or table. Tavl, table, are etymologically the same word. Uh, and indeed, the golden tables that survived Ragnarok, as you might recall from our Volusbau episode, uh, number 47, uh, those were meant to be boards for this game, scholars think. We know it was being played at least as early as the 5th century CE in Scandinavia, though as with the Roman game, the rules have had to be rather speculatively reconstructed. When chess took off in the 12th century, most of these native games fell out of play. And since game rules were almost exclusively the domain of oral tradition, uh, very few people are describing games in any detail, much less writing down full rule books until much later. Uh, and indeed, chess is the board game that begins really generating a solid documentary record. Uh, anyway, if how to play the games is something passed down generation to generation, then it only takes a couple of generations not playing a game for it to essentially be lost. Now, Tavl, or Nefetafel, as it was called in later periods, did persist in remote pockets. There's evidence of it being played in parts of Wales in the 1500s and in Lapland in the 1700s. And it's this form of the game being played in 18th century Lapland that Linnaeus, uh, yes, the guy who gave us our system for naming species, uh, this is the game that he documented rules for under the name of Tablet. And these rules are the starting point for most reconstructions of the game today. How well these rules reflect what Vikings were playing in, say, Dublin in the 10th century is kind of anybody's guess. Uh, oh, and not just Vikings. H.J.R. Murray argues that the game often translated as chess and played very well by Edelwalt, a.k.a. Alfthrith, King Edgar's future queen, in Gamar's uh, L'Estoire des Anglais, which we heard way back in episode 27, uh, this game was, in fact, uh, Hnefetafel, which explains why we're told her father learned it from the Danes. You can learn Hnefetafel or Tavel yourself via a number of app versions that are out there, uh, or on actual physical board game sets. I can vouch for one for Android in the Google Play Store, uh, simply called Hnefetafel, H-N-E-F-A-T-A-F-L, uh, uh, created by Philippe Schober. The basic mechanic of the game is that one player controls a king who is placed in the middle of a square board surrounded by friendly soldiers. 
The other player controls soldiers placed in some configuration along four edges of the board. Each player takes turns moving a piece as far as they want in a vertical or horizontal line, so like a rook. And the player with the king needs to get the king off the board without the king getting captured. Any piece can be captured by having two enemy pieces in the spaces on two opposite sides. So, the rules are actually quite simple. And I have no idea how to play this game, strategically speaking. Uh, I've lost against the easiest computer opponent in the app every game I've played, uh, both playing as the king player and as the attacker. Um, At this point, I can't even tell if there is a sophisticated strategy to it, or if... As I kind of suspect, it's a bit like Connect 4, or the game where you try to connect dots to fill in squares, uh, where it really just boils down to knowing the right counter moves, and the first player to make a mistake is the one who's going to lose. But I don't really know. Anyway, you can try it out yourself on the app. Philippe gives you the option of a range of different board configurations to try, uh, though I've stuck to the historical tablet setup. One interesting feature of Tavel is not just that there might be different configurations of available spaces and initial placement of the pieces, but the fundamental nature of the board varies. Namely, while it's always a latticed or gridded board, sometimes the pieces are placed in the squares or cells, and sometimes they're placed on, as I mentioned earlier, what we would call the points, the intersections of the lines. This is one way of categorizing latticed board games. Do you play in the spaces or on the intersections? Anciently, many games were played on the intersections, which makes sense if you think about the lines on the board representing roads in a city schematic. You'd put your men on the roads and at the crossroad points. Nowadays, uh, Go is one of the few big classic games that still played on the intersections. When Tavel was played on the points, we often find boards that have peg holes at those points which allows for a different physical interaction with the pieces. The board looks more like one of those nail-jumping puzzles that you used to see, uh, where I live at any rate, in country cooking-type restaurants. I think Cracker Barrel used to have them on the tables, but I haven't been to one of those in a long time. Uh, The Celtic Fidgel was also often played on a pegboard-style board. None of the sources I've read in preparation for this series have commented on it, but I would have to wonder if the pegboard version of Tavel or Hnefa Tavel might not be a kind of travel version, a form of the game that you could plausibly play on a ship rocking in the waves. It seems like a very attractive hypothesis to me, uh, but I haven't had a chance to explore the archaeological material to see if it's supported at all. And now, if you'll indulge me a moment, I'd like to explore some general thoughts on board games and their history, um, building up to my first game recommendation for this series. Uh, But I am going to stick with our focus of this episode, the board itself. Up until fairly recently, one of the chief traits of board games was the relative fixedness and stability of the board. Even if there were variations in the board across regions or individual artifacts, Generally, at a minimum, you could trust that the board you start a game on is basically going to be the same when you finish. But a lot of newer board games kind of challenge what we've assumed for millennia a board is. And before I continue, let me try to fix a terminology problem. We have this phenomenon of the renewed popularity of board games among adults, uh, and a particular class of board games. The games at the core of this trend are not the classic childhood board games like Monopoly or Sorry or Clue or even Risk, uh, nor are they the other traditional games, chess, backgammon, Go, 
Uh, we're talking Settlers of Catan, Pandemic, Arkham Horror, Ticket to Ride. Uh, those are the cliche standard bearers. It feels like we should have a categorical name for these games. Adult or mature games seems to show up in discussions and news articles most often, uh, but I find that a bit off-putting. A, because it sounds like you're talking about risque games, and that is a subgenre of its own. Uh, and B, because plenty of these games are also good for anyone, you know, 10 or up. It's less that they're games for grown-ups, and more that they aren't games that are targeted to children. Which does usually mean they involve a certain level of strategic complexity, but also means just that they aren't the game of life, or mousetrap, or candyland. Last episode, I mentioned the term Euro games, which at least isn't age-restrictive and does reflect a historical context, uh, in that since the 80s, European game designers and gaming communities have really led the trend, and this term overtly contrasts them with the Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, Hasbro side of board games as toy box items. But Eurogame also has its more specific association with economic worker placement games, so it's not an ideal term either. I was tempted to try to concoct a Latinate neologism, uh, but I think I'm going to go with Game Night Games. Or GNGs? Does that work? Um, I think the label recognizes the present cultural context by which many of these games come into people's lives. And also, a Game Night doesn't have to be exclusively adult, but the littler kids have probably been put to bed. And of course, you can hold your Game Night in the middle of the afternoon. This label highlights that these games are social, and while they can be competitive, especially depending on the personality types in your gaming group, they typically don't have that aura of almost professionalized competition that you have with something like chess, for example. So, where was I? Oh yes, these newish games, these game night games, they sometimes redefine what our traditional expectations of a board are. One way of challenging what a board is, is its relationship to the pieces. The boards that do this don't necessarily physically change, we'll get to those in a minute, but they do transform our understanding of what a board means. In the vast majority of board games through history, the board is a set of spaces through which the pieces move. Sometimes it's an open field, as in chess, and sometimes it's a fixed path, or multiple paths, as in Monopoly or Snakes and Ladders. Which, by the way, is another ancient Indian game dating back to the 2nd century CE, uh, which might be a bit of information that comes as a surprise to American consumers who only ever grew up with the Milton Bradley Shoots and Ladders version of it. Uh, but we now have this whole class of games that have boards, but the pieces don't move through the spaces. Instead, rather than spaces, you have essentially slots that pieces occupy. Now, there are lots of ancient and modern games of alignment, which are about placing your pieces on a board not to traverse it, but to construct patterns or connect lines or encircle regions. On the simplest level, Tic-Tac-Toe is an alignment game, but in a way, so is Ticket to Ride, where you're claiming train routes. But a further level of abstraction is the worker placement game, where you really are putting pieces into slots that produce some kind of effect. So while visually the board usually represents space and locations, the actual mechanical function of the board in the game is more as a kind of scoring device or calculation tool, uh, actually hearkening back to that old exchequer table tallying royal accounts. Dead of Winter, a game I mentioned last episode in which you play as colonists trying to survive a zombie apocalypse, uses this kind of board. 
The parts of the board represent locations in the world, and you do move people you control into those places, except really you're just placing them in slots in those places, which assigns them a job and allows you to collect cards or resources or zombie kills, all of which are game commodities necessary for winning the game. The traversal is kind of incidental. You could almost play the game without the board, just by keeping track of what a given character is doing on a sheet of paper, or playing cards on top of a character card, or other possible mechanisms. The board is a very efficient way of visualizing information, but the board layout is not actually instrumental in how the game plays. So that's one radical revision of how the board in a board game can be constituted. The other relatively novel category of board is the board that changes layout every game. This you can do in two ways. One is randomly generating a board by laying out tiles at the start of the game. This is what you have with Catan or the Forbidden Blank series, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert, etc. Once you've constructed the board, you play on it in a straightforward way, but you do generate a new and sort of previously unknown board to start on each game. A step further is the board that is generated as the game is played, where you draw tiles and add them as part of the gameplay. I can't think of any pre-modern games that have a mechanic like this. There's an echo of it in Dominoes or the randomized starting board in Mahjong, but I wouldn't call either of those a board game particularly. If you can think of one, tweet it at me. Uh, It's a topic I'm very interested in. Anyway, my recommendation to wrap this episode up with is a game where you build the board as you play. This is Betrayal at House on the Hill. This game actually goes beyond even the emergent board idea uh, in that at a turning point in the game, its fundamental rules change in unpredictable ways. Here's how it works. The theme is characters exploring a spooky old house a la Scooby-Doo or maybe a Hardy Boys Nancy Drew kind of vibe. It's a bit of a stripped-down, quasi-role-playing game, where each player plays a distinct character who has different attributes. So you're using a character card to track health and mental power. Um, But it's far simpler than any pen-and-paper RPG. That said, if you have a gaming group that you one day hope to lead to Dungeons & Dragons or a similar game, this could be a kind of gateway drug to test the waters. Anyway... In the first phase of the game, you explore this house, drawing new room tiles and adding them on as you open different doors, and you collect items and generally try to prepare for the second phase of the game. As you explore more of the house, you start building up a greater and greater chance of triggering this second phase to begin, uh, but it always comes as the result of a dice roll, so it's a bit unpredictable. When this moment is triggered, the game changes. You go to the rulebook and look up in a chart what second act is being activated based on a combination of what item was found in what room when the event was triggered. And this second act is the titular betrayal, where some horror-themed scenario happens. Usually, one player is revealed as the betrayer, uh, though they didn't even know it themselves until this very moment, and now all the other players are playing against that player in order to achieve victory conditions which are going to be different in every scenario. Maybe the betrayer is revealed to be a vampire with a small army of monstrous bats now flying around the house, and the humans have to find a wooden stake and kill the vampire, while the vampire has to eliminate all the humans. Or maybe the betrayer is a secret person who is trying to sink the house into the ocean, and the humans have to escape as all the rooms are flooding. 
Um, and I just made up those two scenarios, uh, though they could very well be similar to real ones that I haven't encountered in the game yet. Uh, but those are the kinds of situations you get. And the fun thing is not knowing what you're going to need for the victory. It might be combat-based, or it might be about getting people into specific rooms as fast as possible, or it might be about solving a mystery by gathering clues, um, and there's even some where the betrayer isn't necessarily hostile. This variety makes it a pretty entertaining game, especially if you like story-focused games. It doesn't have a lot of strategic depth to it, uh, since you can't really plan for anything. Uh, players who really like to optimize their play and are very rigorous and competitive might find it frustrating. But if you basically want to simulate a Scooby-Doo episode, um, but with real monsters rather than just old men in masks, uh, it's a good time. It's also one of those games that's fun with a group of adult friends, but you could also easily fold in a 12-year-old with no problem. It's also a game I particularly like for how it allows for cooperative play while still ultimately producing winners and losers. My family isn't particularly competitive when we game, and I've really enjoyed cooperative games with them, but some cooperative games can just turn into a kind of mush of groupthink where you lose the sense of individual players getting to make choices and deal with the consequences. Both the RPG element and the betrayal mechanic protect Betrayal at House on the Hill from this weakness that some co-op games have. So that's my first recommendation for the series. It's a hugely popular game, so it's not a particularly avant-garde recommendation. And frankly, most of my recommendations are probably going to be old news for those of you already into the sort of game night game store scene. But I hope it might pique some interest in gaming out there uh, or for bringing games into groups like your family during the holidays that you haven't done this kind of gaming with before. I should also state that these are all personal and uncompensated recommendations. Uh, no game publishers or designers have sponsored these reviews. Next episode, we're going to look at the movements of the king and queen, as well as learn about yet another ancient game and get another Game Night Game recommendation. Until then, you can follow and interact with us on Twitter, at MDTPodcast. You can send an email to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, and at that web domain, you can find more information about this and every episode, including bibliographic references. And lastly, you can become a patron of the show on Patreon. Patrons get access to our audiobook, Jordanus's Wonders of the East. If you have any traveling to do over the holidays, that's three hours of medieval travel writing that could keep you company. You also get access to occasional little bonus audio features, like one I just posted as an appendix to last episode, which gives the moral portrait of the King piece from Caxton. You can find us at Patreon by searching for Medieval Death Trip there, or going directly to patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, just like our Twitter handle. I'm trying to get this holiday series rolling out bomp, bomp, bomp as we head up to Christmas, so look for the next installment pretty much as soon as I can get it finished, uh, and more after that. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening. <laughs>